Well, welcome to another week of reading through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well uh, this week as we uh, wrap up the Gospel of Matthew and begin the Gospel of Mark uh, in this week's uh, reading plan. So I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, Thanks for joining us uh, again on Reading Through the New Testament. This is, uh, I believe, episode 7, but for week 6, week 6 beginning February 6th, where we will read Matthew chapter 26 through Mark chapter 2. So we end the Gospel of of Matthew and begin the Gospel of Mark this week. Um, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is, of course, written by one of Jesus' uh, original 12 disciples, Matthew, but also it's especially written, it seems, for a Jewish audience. It often quotes about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets and how Jesus, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, fulfills all of those promises and types and all those things that were Uh, foreshadowed and talked about and pointed to in the Old Testament. They're all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the King of Israel, the son of David, the son of Abraham, uh, the true Israelite uh, to come. And so as we begin now in Matthew chapter 26, um, this of course is beginning the last three chapters of Matthew's gospel, where he begins to focus now upon uh, the uh, you know, the the closing death and the arrest, the betrayal of Jesus Christ, his suffering, his crucifixion before culminating in his resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. So 26, we have the plot to kill Jesus at the very beginning of 26. We see the, the, the religious leaders want Jesus dead. He needs to die in their eyes And uh, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, um, is ready to sell Jesus, to uh, sell his master um, that he claims is his master um, for 30 pieces of silver. After uh, an incident where Jesus is anointed for burial with expensive ointment, we see the, uh, the institution of the Last Supper where Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we still continue to uh, celebrate and remember um, in our churches, in Christian churches everywhere, where we, through the cup and through the bread, we remember uh, our Lord's death and what he's uh, done for us. Eventually, Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, and we read about his prayers to the Father, um, Lord, Father, if uh, if uh, it is possible uh, that this cup can be removed from me, please let it be. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays this prayer, focuses upon the Father, focuses upon the will of his Father. He's teaching us to pray in a way that is similar to the way that he himself prays. He prays to the Father as the truly only begotten Son of the Father. But he teaches us to pray, uh, Father, Um, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So we as the adopted children of God now pray like our big brother who is the only begotten son of God, uh, the true one. Well, Jesus eventually is uh, betrayed by Judas with a kiss, right? And then he's uh, led before the Sanhedrin, where Peter also will deny uh, Christ. Um, Jesus then eventually is led to before Pilate, his trial there, and is then led to be crucified, condemned to be crucified. Barabbas is let go. Jesus is condemned to die, and he dies on a cross outside of Jerusalem, um, uh, for the sake of us, for our sins, we know. But to the watching world, he looks like, um, in some ways, foolish. He looks foolish to the world, right? Because the religious leaders are walking by and they're saying, hey, you know, you saved other people, but you cannot save yourself. You're the king. He's the king of Israel, remember? Um, and let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Mocking, uh, shamelessly mocking the Lord of glory, hanging on the cross for our sins. Um, he dies on the cross crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is buried um, <clears throat> in a tomb, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And it's interesting, though, the religious leaders have remembered that Jesus had talked openly about the fact that he was going to die and he would raise on the third day. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus's followers seem to have, I don't know, not believed this part or forgotten this statement of Jesus. I don't know what it is, um, but it seems to not really be to the forefront of their minds that this is a real possibility. But it's interesting that the religious leaders are so concerned about the fact that Jesus had said this, that they ask for a guard of soldiers to be put in front of the tomb. This highlights to us again that this resurrection thing wasn't something that Jesus threw in after the fact. He had been talking about it all the way to the cross, so much so that his enemies were concerned that his disciples would come and take away the body and say that what Jesus had been talking about had, been, had come true. And in the words of the religious leaders, this last fraud about the resurrection would be worse than the first. So they do so. But of course, this is not able to hold Christ in, and no disciple comes to steal the body of Jesus. No one comes into the tomb, just Jesus comes out. And the stone is rolled away. Um, he raises from the grave. Of course, Matthew tells us that this story, there's a lie that goes around that the disciples stole the body. And this today, still, you know, you hear um, this is one of the alternative theories of the resurrection. That's a really bad theory, but this is something that some people will still say. Is that, yeah, the disciples stole the body um, from the tomb, and this is what the religious leaders pay these soldiers um, to go and tell other people. And then the Gospel of Matthew closes with uh, Jesus now having all authority and commanding his apostles, his disciples, to now go and make disciples of all the nations, not simply Israel, all nations, the Gentiles, every nation on the earth, and to do this by baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them, those nations, to observe all that Christ has commanded. And then he closes with the promise that he is with us always to the end of the age. So that wraps up Matthew's gospel. But then also, real quick, we're going to I want to give you a, a little bit of an intro to Mark's gospel, which we will begin reading in the latter part of the week, chapters 1 and 2. Now, whereas Matthew's gospel is written 
it seems, especially for a Jewish audience, um, and uh, focuses upon those aspects of uh, of Jesus and and um, and looks at Jesus from that angle, so to speak. Mark's gospel is one that is especially, it seems, uh, uh, written for a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience, um, and it seems especially, uh, there's a good chance that it was especially written for Christians in Rome, in Rome. Um, it's written by a guy named John Mark, whom we read about in the scriptures, and he is a close associate of the apostle Peter. I believe he's mentioned in First Peter, uh, maybe chapter 5, um, where uh, Peter references Mark. In a, in a loving and an affectionate way. And uh, so you can see the close connection these two had. And it seems that the Gospel of Mark, while written by Mark, is really, in a sense, Peter's Gospel, but written through with the hand of Mark. And so what you have in the Gospel of Mark is is a, another instance, not simply of John Mark writing about Jesus, but it, it seems that he had close fellowship with the Apostle Peter. And so you're getting a lot of Peter's perspectives as well in the Gospel of Mark that you're going to be reading. And the Gospel of Mark is is interesting because one of the features that you see of it is that it often describes the disciples of Jesus, including Peter, in very negative lights. Um the disciples are not flattering figures in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is, but the disciples are not. They come across as lacking understanding, um, uh, not able to grasp really who Jesus is, right? So um, that, those are some interesting facts about the Gospel of Mark as we read it. And really, a helpful division that you can think in your mind as you're reading the whole Gospel of Mark is that you can split it up really into two big chunks, the first chunk is from chapter 1, the verse, first verse, all the way to chapter 8, verse 26. And up to that point, Jesus is throughout pictured in Mark's gospel as the powerful Messiah. And I'm stealing this from a New Testament introduction book that I've got, but this is a helpful, helpful division that Jesus, the Son of God, is the powerful Messiah. So you see him doing miracles, casting out demons, and all this is leading up to Peter's confession. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You're the powerful Christ who casts out demons, who heals the sick, who has authority and, and jurisdiction over the demons and the forces of darkness. But then something very surprising happens in the second half of Mark's gospel, verse chapter 8, verse 26, all the way to the end of chapter 16, verse 8, where we see Jesus is the Son of God now as the suffering servant. And this is uh, really the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Jesus, the powerful Messiah, is at the same time the suffering servant. And it is, it is a hard thing for us to grasp that someone so powerful could suffer in such a way that Jesus did. But he demonstrates his power and his strength in his weakness and through his weakness, especially symbolized and shown in the cross. And so that's really the twofold division that you can have in mind as you're reading Mark's gospel. First half, powerful Messiah. Second half of the book, he's the suffering servant. And see how Jesus is portrayed as, as each of those in, in the gospel. And then uh, after being shown to be the powerful Messiah, this is the really amazing contrast. 
is that Jesus then starts talking about, yeah, but by the way, I'm going to go suffer and die and, and be crucified and rise again. And this is something that was hard for the disciples to understand, understandably so. Um, and it's something that we would do well as we read the Gospel of Mark to take into account um, as we read and interpret uh, this book. So the book of the Mark's Gospel is different as well because it doesn't focus upon a birth narrative. So whereas Matthew and Luke will give us the story about how Jesus came into the world um, in the womb of by the power of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Mark's gospel is different because he focuses right away the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he goes to John the Baptist's ministry and focuses us upon the baptism of Jesus and then his temptation quickly, and then gets right into his ministry, really focusing us upon that very short, uh, really three-year period or whatever it would be, just a few years of Jesus' life, um, because those especially those years especially encapsulate um, the gospel of grace that we're saved by of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So he's revealed as the Son of God in his baptism, and he is shown as to be powerful in this first half of the book. The latter half of the book, this Son of God is now shown to be the suffering servant, and it will culminate with a Roman centurion. Right? Remember, this book was probably written to Christians in Rome. And you could imagine that a Roman centurion at the very end of the book saying, this man was the son of God, what that would mean to the original readers and hearers of this book if you're a Christian in Rome. So we're going to start with Mark's gospel as well this week um, with his baptism under John the Baptist, his temptation, and then the beginning of his ministry in the latter part of chapter one and going into verse two. Okay. Well, let's look and see a few things that we can learn from uh, Matthew 26 through 28, but then also begin to introduce Mark's gospel and something we can learn from that um, as well. <clears throat> Again, I want to quote from J.C. Ryle, um, his expository thoughts on the gospels. Um, this week, I want to look with you at Matthew. The first thing I want to talk to you about is Christ's prayer in Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. J.C. Ryle has some helpful comments to talk about this whenever we read about Jesus' prayer, his agony, and what he went through there. Ryle writes this, The verses we have now read describe what is commonly called Christ's agony at Gethsemane. It is a passage which undoubtedly contains deep and mysterious things. We ought to read it with reverence and wonder, for there is much in it which we cannot fully comprehend. Why do we find our Lord so sorrowful and very heavy, as he is, is here described? What are we to make of his words, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death? Why do we see him going apart from his disciples, and falling on his face, and crying to his Father with strong cries, and thrice-repeated prayer? Why is the Almighty Son of God, who had worked so many miracles, so heavy and disturbed? Why is Jesus, who came into the world to die, so like one ready to faint at the approach of death? Why is all this? There is but one reasonable answer to these questions. The weight that pressed down our Lord's soul was not the fear of death and its pains. Thousands have endured the most agonizing sufferings of body and died without a groan, and so, no doubt, might our Lord. But the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world, 
which seems to have now pressed down upon him with peculiar force. It was the burden of our guilt imputed to him, which was now laid on him as on the head of the scapegoat. How great that burden must have been, no heart of man can conceive. It is known only to God. Well made the Greek litany speak of the unknown sufferings of Christ. The words of Scott on this subject are probably correct. Christ at this time endured as much misery of the same kind with that of condemned spirits as could possibly consist with a pure conscience, perfect love of God and man, and an assured confidence of a glorious event. But however mysterious this part of our Lord's history may seem to us, we must not fail to observe the precious lessons of practical instruction which it contains. Let us now see what those lessons are. Ryle continues here, let us, in the, let us learn in the first place that prayer is the best practical remedy that we can use in time of trouble. We see that Christ himself prayed when his soul was sorrowful. All true Christians ought to do the same. Trouble is a cup that all must drink in this world of sin. We are born to troubles as the sparks fly upward, Job 5.7. We cannot avoid it. Of all creatures, none is so vulnerable as man. Our bodies, our minds, our families, our business, our friends are all so many doors through which trial will come in. The holiest saints can claim no exemption from it. Like their master, they are often men of sorrow. But what is the first thing to be done in time of trouble? We must pray. Like Job, we must fall down and worship, Job 1.20. Like Hezekiah, we must spread our matters before the Lord, 2 Kings 19.14. The first person we must turn to for help must be our God. We must tell our tell all our sorrow to our Father in heaven. We must believe confidently that nothing is too trivial or minute to be laid before him, so long as we do it with entire submission to his will. It is the mark of faith to keep nothing back from our best friend. So doing, we may be sure we shall have an answer. If it be possible, and the thing we ask is for God's glory, it shall be done. The thorn in the flesh shall either be removed, or grace to endure it will be given to us, as it was to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12.9 May we all store up this lesson against the day of need. It is a true saying that prayers are the leeches of care. Let us learn in the second place, Ryle continues here, that entire submission of will to the will of God should be one of our chief aims in this world. The words of our Lord are a beautiful example of the spirit that we should follow after in this matter. He says, not as I will, but as you will. He says again, may your will be done. A will unsanctified and uncontrolled is one great cause of unhappiness in life. It may be seen in little infants. It is born with us. We all like our own way. We wish and want many things and forget that we are entirely ignorant what is for our good and unfit to choose for ourselves. Happy is he who has learned to have no wishes, and in every state to be content. It is a lesson which we are slow to learn, and like Paul, we must learn it not in the school of mortal man, but of Christ. Philippians 4.11 Would we know whether we are born again and growing in grace? Let us see how it is with us in the matter of our wills. Can we bear disappointment? Can we put up patiently with unexpected trials and vexations? Can we see our pet plans and darling schemes crossed without murmuring and complaint? Can we sit still and suffer calmly, as well as go up and down and work actively? These are the things that prove whether we have the mind of Christ. 
It ought never to be forgotten that warm feelings and joyful frames are not the truest evidences of grace. A mortified will is a far more valuable possession. Even our Lord himself did not always rejoice, but he could always say, May your will be done. Lastly here, J.C. Rowell draws one last lesson for us from this passage, and it's really good. It's an extended section, but it's just really good stuff. He writes this, Let us learn in the last place that there is great weakness, even in true disciples of Christ, and that they have need to watch and pray against it. We see Peter, James, and John, those three chosen apostles, sleeping when they ought to have been watching and praying. And we find our Lord addressing them in these solemn words, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is a double nature in all believers. Converted, renewed, sanctified as they are, they still carry about with them a mass of indwelling corruption, a body of sin. Paul speaks of this when he says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. The experience of all true Christians in every age confirms this. They find within two contrary principles and a continual strife between the two. To these two principles, our Lord alludes when he addresses his half-awakened disciples. He calls the one flesh and the other spirit. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But does our Lord excuse this weakness of his disciples? Be it far from us to think so. Those who draw this conclusion mistake his meaning. He uses that very weakness as an argument for watchfulness and prayer. He teaches us that the very fact that we are encompassed with infirmity should stir us up to continually to watch and pray. If we know anything of true religion, let us never forget this lesson. If we desire to walk with God comfortably and not fall like David or Peter, let us never forget to watch and pray. Let us live like men on enemy's ground and be always on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. The world is very ensnaring. The devil is very busy. Let our Lord's words ring in our ears daily like a trumpet. Our spirits may sometimes be very willing, but our flesh is always very weak. Then let us always watch and always pray. That's the end of that section from Ryle. A great illustration of what we can learn about prayer and watching from our Lord's experience and what he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I think it's, it's definitely, I don't know if you're like me, but prayer is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. It's something that I don't know of any of us who say, yeah, I've got a great prayer life and I'm so happy with it and I don't need to work on it. I've met many, 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 many more people who are like me who say, my prayer life, I just struggle with it so much. It's so difficult. And we struggle with what to pray for, how to pray, how to stay focused in prayer. Um, But one of the things I think that we really see here is that trouble, and and sometimes too, right, we're, we we struggle then also with, with all the trials that come into our lives and that God allows in our lives and that God sends our way. But actually all of those trials and troubles and all the suffering in this life is meant to press us towards prayer. And actually, maybe some in some weird way, as we as we know as we are now in Christ, we can receive all of these sufferings. We don't enjoy them, 
We're not called to enjoy them, but we definitely can receive them as from God and part of our Father's plan. And perhaps we can use them as as things that are being sent by God to press us further into praying, to, to force us to pray because we're naturally so slow to go to God in prayer and use those troubles, as Ryle points out here in this, that that we can use those trials and those tribulations to press us more and more into the heart of God the Father through his Son, that we can lay all of our problems at his feet. He wants us to pray to him, but he wants us to pray to him in such a way that we're willing to be submitted to his will as our Lord Jesus was. He submitted and said, not my will, but yours be done. In the Lord's Prayer, remember, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, your will be done. So our wills, we want them to be submitted to our Father's will because we know that his will is perfect and good and and the best possible will for us who are in Christ. And lastly, as he points out, that we also need to be careful that we don't get too big of heads because we need to be reminded that we are weak. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And while on the one hand we press on and we want to grow in grace, we want to be uh, serve the Lord in, in great ways, on the other hand, we want to always be on guard and remember that while we're still in this world, we still have to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We still have to pray, forgive us this day our trespasses. We have to ask God to forgive us, and we have to ask God to protect us and keep us in our daily lives, because this world is a place of trial and tribulation, and our flesh is weak. So we need to lean and trust and rest upon our great Savior and upon our strong Father who hears us when we pray all the time. Okay, so that's Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. That's something we can learn from there, and I think that's very helpful stuff. Um, next, though, I want to remind our look at what we can learn for, again through Ryle from Matthew chapter twenty-seven, particularly while Christ is on the cross and utters those those uh, very well-known words that we know if we've been in church for a long time or even a short time, you should probably you may have heard these words: "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Ryle writes this. In these verses, we read the conclusion of our, Lord's, of our Lord Jesus Christ's passion. After six hours of agonizing suffering, he became obedient even unto death and yielded up the Spirit. Three points in the narrative demand a special notice. To them, let us confine our attention. Let us observe in the first place the remarkable words which Jesus uttered shortly before his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a deep mystery in these words which no mortal man can fathom. No doubt they were not wrung from our Lord by mere bodily pain. Such an explanation, his utterly sunsa- such an explanation is utterly unsatisfactory and dishonorable to our blessed Savior. They were meant to express the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of a world's sins. They were meant to show how truly and literally he was our substitute, was made sin and a curse for us, and endured God's righteous anger against a world's sin in his own person. At that dreadful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him to the uttermost. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief, 
Isaiah 53:10. He bore our sins. He carried our transgressions. Heavy must have been that burden. Real and literal must have been our Lord's substitution for us when he, the eternal Son of God, could speak of himself as for a time forsaken. Let the expression sink down into our hearts and not be forgotten. We can have no stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or of the vicarious nature of Christ's sufferings than his cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry that should store us up to hate sin and encourage us to trust in Christ. Let us observe in the second place how much is contained in the words which describe our Lord's end. We are simply told, He yielded up His Spirit. There never was a breath drawn of such deep import as this. There never was an event on which so much depended. The Roman soldiers and the gaping crowd around the cross saw nothing remarkable. They only saw a person dying as others die, with all the usual agony and suffering which attend a crucifixion. But they knew nothing of the eternal interests which were involved in the whole transaction. That death discharged in full the mighty debt which sinners owe to God, and threw open the door of life to every believer. That death satisfied the righteous claims of God's holy law, and enabled God to be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. That death was no mere example of self-sacrifice, but a complete atonement and propitiation for man's sin, affecting the condition and prospects of all mankind. That death solved the hard problem, how God could be perfectly holy and yet perfectly merciful. It opened to the world a fountain for all sin and uncleanness. It was a complete victory over Satan and spoiled him openly. It finished the transgression, made reconciliation for iniquity, and brought in everlasting righteousness. It proved the sinfulness of sin when it needed such a sacrifice to atone for it. It proved the love of God to sinners when he sent his own son to make the atonement. Never, in fact, was there or could there be again such a death. No wonder that the earth quaked when Jesus died in our stead on the accursed tree. The solid frame of the world might well tremble and be amazed when the soul of Christ was made an offering for sin. Isaiah 53, 10. Great stuff from Ryle, reminding us again of the importance of the cross of Christ. One of the things I really appreciated is the fact that he he highlighted that when we see the cross, it's important that well, and, and this is uh, something I think that is a, a uh, danger that we need to be careful of as we, as we read about Jesus, as we think about his crucifixion. It can be tempting to simply only think about the physical side of Jesus' sufferings. Um, now, there was a physical element to that, right? We read in the gospel accounts that he was beaten, he was scourged, he was nailed to the cross. He was spat upon. He was he was punched. All of those things are true, and we don't deny those things. He did die a physical death on the cross. He was nailed. He bled. All of those things. We don't want to deny the earthly reality of his uh, atonement. On the other hand, we don't want to forget, as Ryle's pointing out here, that it was not mere bodily pain either. In fact, 
there was a much deeper spiritual reality going on where Jesus was made sin for us. He became a curse for us. While we could, and that is a reality that we, so for instance, with that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We think about that phrase, and we we can understand something of what that means. But really, when we stop and meditate upon, that means God forsook God. God the Father forsook his Son how what does that at some level right we 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 our minds run up against a wall and we realize i can't what does that mean who can explain this fully and satisfactorily there's deep mystery here it doesn't mean we can't say anything true but it does mean that we can, we will never get our hands around the depth of what was being communicated in that statement and the depth of reality of what was actually going on. Jesus was being made sin for us. All of the sins of the world were put upon him. And the physical sufferings are true and real and are manifestations of that. But only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are really able to search and understand fully what happened there. We look at it, and we are saved by it, and we are grateful for it, and we are in awe of it, but part of the awe is that we can only get so far as we think about what he did for us. So rather than trying to figure it all out, We do try to understand it as best we can, and as the Scriptures teach us and as the Holy Spirit makes it plain through the pages of Scripture. But we also do so with deep awe and gratitude that understands that there is a great mystery here that we will never be able to plumb the depths of. The cross of Christ. The resurrection, though, comes next, right? We don't have a Christ who is dead. We serve a Christ who rose in history. We believe this is literal. A literal resurrection happened. No figurative thing here. No metaphor. Jesus of Nazareth is alive after having died 2,000 years ago. So let's read a little bit of what Ryle says about the resurrection of our Savior. He says this, And this is based off of Matthew 28, 1 through 10. He says, The principal subject of these verses is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It is one of those truths which lie at the very foundation of Christianity and has therefore received special attention in the four Gospels. All four evangelists describe minutely how our Lord was crucified. All four relate with no less clearness that he rose again. We need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and headstone of the great work of redemption which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle which he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our surety and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, 
How could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? 1 Corinthians 15.17 Had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he has overcome death and him that had the power of death, that is the devil? Hebrews 2.14 But thanks be unto God, we are not left in doubt. The Lord Jesus really rose again for our justification. True Christians are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They may boldly say with Paul, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yes, rather that is risen again. We have reason to be very thankful that this wonderful truth of our religion is so clearly and fully proved. It is a striking circumstance that of all the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so incontrovertibly established as the fact that he rose again. The wisdom of God, who knows the unbelief of human nature, has proved a great cloud has provided a great cloud of witnesses on the subject. Never was there a fact which the enemies which the friends of God were so slow to believe as the resurrection of Christ. Never was there a fact which the enemies of God were so anxious to disprove. And yet, in spite of the unbelief of professed friends and the enmity of foes, the fact was thoroughly established. Its evidences will always appear to be a fair and impartial will always appear to a fair and impartial mind unanswerable. It would be impossible to prove anything in the world if we refuse to believe that Jesus rose again. Let us notice in these verses, Ryle continues, the glory and majesty with which Christ rose from the dead. We are told that there was a great earthquake. We are told that the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door of the sepulcher and set upon it. We need not suppose that our blessed Lord needed the help of any angel when he came forth from the grave. We need not for a moment doubt that he rose again by his own power. But it pleased God that his resurrection should be accompanied and followed by signs and wonders. It seemed good that the earth should shake and a glorious angel appear when the Son of God arose from the dead as a conqueror. Let us not fail to see in the manner of our Lord's resurrection a type and pledge of the resurrection of his believing people. The grave could not hold him beyond the appointed time, and it shall not be able to hold them. A glorious angel was a witness of his rising, and glorious angels shall be the messengers who shall gather believers when they rise again. He rose with a renewed body, and yet a body, real, true, and material, and so also shall his people have a glorious body and be like their head. When we see him, we shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2. Let us take comfort in this thought. Trial, sorrow, and persecution are often the portion of God's people. Sickness, weakness, and pain often hurt and wear their poor earthly body. But their good time is yet to come. Let them wait patiently, and they shall have a glorious resurrection. When we die, and where we are buried, and what kind of funeral we have matters little. The great question to be asked is this, how shall we rise again? Wonderful reminders again of the power of the resurrection, isn't it? Ryle just so good. Just I reading these again is so good for me because I'm reminded of just how wonderfully plain and simple and yet profound 
um, the gospel is. Ryle had a great ability to communicate the gospel truths in simple, plain, easy-to-understand ways, and yet it still is quite profound, isn't it? Um, about the fact that uh, pointing out how the majesty of our Lord rose as a conqueror, and yet also taking the great comfort for ourselves as believers that that his his resurrection assures our resurrection and points forward to it, right? Um, because of our union with Christ, our connection to him that is now inseparable, because he rose, we also will raise, and it's assured that we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. Uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff from J.C. Ryle and the resurrection, a central thing. And as in a few months, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday, remembering this this such significant and, and important and central event to our faith. Uh, lastly, I want to quote something that J.C. Ryle for us as we uh, look to Mark, Mark's gospel. And this is taken from Mark chapter 2, where uh, Jesus is here healing the paralytic, but also telling the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. And this kind of helpfully ties in to where the closing of the Gospel of Matthew, where it talks about the cross and the resurrection, because all of these things uh, result and are the basis upon which we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And so Ryle talks about this wonderful incident incident in uh, Mark 2, 1 through 12, and he says this, We see in the last place in these verses the priestly power of forgiving sins, which is possessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that our Lord said to the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven. He said these words with a meaning. He knew the hearts of the scribes by whom he was surrounded. He intended to show them that he laid claim to be the true high priest and to have the power of absolving sinners though at present the claim was seldom put forward. But that he had the power, he told them expressly. He says, The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In saying, Your sins are forgiven, he had only exercised his rightful office. Let us consider how great must be the authority of him who has the power to forgive sins. This is the thing that none can do but God. No angel in heaven, no man upon earth, no church in council, no minister of any denomination can take away from the sinner's conscience the load of guilt and give him peace with God. They may point to the fountain open for all. They may declare with authority whose sins God is willing to forgive, but they cannot absolve by their own authority. They cannot put away transgressions. This is the peculiar prerogative of God and a prerogative which he has put in the hands of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let us think for a moment how great a blessing it is that Jesus is our great high priest, and that we know where to go for absolution. We must have a priest and a sacrifice between ourselves and God. Conscience demands an atonement for our many sins. God's holiness makes it absolutely needful. Without an atoning priest, there can be no peace of soul. Jesus Christ is the very priest that we need, mighty to forgive and pardon, tender-hearted and willing to save. And now let us ask ourselves whether we have yet known the Lord Jesus as our high priest. Have we applied to him? 
Have we sought absolution? If not, we are yet in our sins. May we never rest until the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his voice, saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Amen. That is great stuff. Um, That is the gospel, isn't it? Reconciliation with God the forgiveness of our sins, being accepted in his sight. And then the Christian life is one of gratitude for receiving such a wonderful benefit from such a great God and Savior. Sometimes we struggle with the forgiveness of our sins and we we doubt it. And we uh, sometimes our minds are foggy. But we have to go to Christ again And again, remember at the very beginning we talked about prayer in the garden. We have to go back to God in prayer. If we're physically troubled, but especially if we're spiritually troubled, we need to let that drive us to Jesus. He's our high priest. He is sympathetic towards us. He knows what it is to be faced with temptations and struggles and trials. He also sees all the struggles and the trials of your brothers and your sisters in Christ and all the things they're praying to him for as well. You don't need to know all their trials and all their struggles in every detail, but he does know them all, and he's sympathetic to you just as he's sympathetic to all of them. And believe me, if you don't think he has to be sympathetic with them just as he is with you, you're wrong. He has to be sympathetic and patient and kind to all of us because we're all in need of great forgiveness and great patience and great compassion and concern from such a high priest as this one. He's in heaven. He hears our prayers. He loves us, and he's concerned for us, each and every one of you. He looks at you not as a burden to be carried, but as a sheep to be saved and to be nurtured. And so we have such a wonderful high priest that he offers to each and every one of us the forgiveness of our sins, the canceling of our debt that we owe God. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the temple. He is the absolver. And that's what we do as Christians. That's what we should remind each other of. We need to remind each other. As, as, as Ryle points out so helpfully, we cannot absolve other people by our own authority. However, we go and remind them of Jesus' authority and remind them of his words, which are unchanging. And we take Christ's words of forgiveness because of his authority to forgive to each other in the church, to our family members, to our coworkers, and to a lost world that has gone astray from God. And we bring this priest, this priest comes to them through our words as we share the gospel with other people. And what a wonderful, comforting thing that is, isn't it, as well, just as we wrap up here, just thinking, because one of the daunting things about evangelism or about speaking to other people about Christ is sometimes, if we're not careful, we take too much responsibility upon ourselves. I'm not saying we we don't share the gospel with other people, but we start to think as if it's our job to save them or to come up with new and novel ways of doing it. But in reality, we are instruments in the high priest's hands. And our high priest is using us 
as simply the instrument through which he comes to them through his word, by the Spirit. And we simply have to share the words of God with them and point them to the truths of Scripture and be faithful in that way. And as we are loving them, as we are concerned for them, as we are sharing the good news of Scripture about Jesus, our high priest, our lamb, he will take that and love them through us. We are the instruments in his hand, and he is the Savior And it's such a blessing to know that he will use us um, in seeking and saving the lost sheep all around us. So I hope this is uh, encouraging to you. I hope that you're reading through the New Testament. And as we dive into Mark's gospel, um, we're going to see the powerful Savior, the powerful Son of God, the powerful Messiah, but who is also the suffering servant who demonstrates both of these things, his power through suffering, And finally, it culminates in his powerful resurrection in chapter 16. So um, please come talk to me if you have any questions or comments or if you're excited about reading the Bible or anything. I want you to come talk to me. I look forward to hearing from you. And um, uh, yeah, I hope you're reading through the Bible. I hope you're, you're studying. It's challenging you. It's growing you. And I hope this podcast is just playing a small part as well in um, just pointing you again to the Savior Uh, that we're reading about in these uh, portions of God's Word. So I want to close as we we wrap up. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. Take care, and God bless.